Section 9 of Wellington by George Hooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 7 The Last Campaign in Portugal, Part 1. This autumn of 1809 may be regarded as the turning point in his career, for it was then that he resolved to create those lines of Torres Vedras which proved such a bitter surprise to the French army. He went to Lisbon in the beginning of October and finally settled that important matter and then traveled to Seville, where he conferred with his elder brother, then about to depart for England and accept office as Minister for Foreign Affairs. By the middle of November he was again in Balajos, and a letter which he sent thence to Lord Liverpool shows how distinctly he foresaw the tempest against which the shelter of the lines was prepared. At the end of July, before he knew what had happened at Talavera, Napoleon from Schönbrunn directed Clark to stop any movement upon Portugal, but to prepare for an expedition in the following February. Wellington did not know of this, nor was he aware that on October 7, 1809, Napoleon, now at peace with Austria, though still in her capital, notified to his minister of war that in December, one hundred thousand men should be collected between bayonne and orleans and that he himself would lead these vast reinforcements into spain with what object a fortnight earlier in the dispatch appointing soult major-general of his army in spain he says the king having no experience in war my intention is that until i arrive you should be responsible I wish myself to enter Lisbon as soon as possible. How did Wellington look on the same situation? The enemy ought to make the possession of Portugal their first object when their reinforcements will arrive in Spain, he wrote to Lord Liverpool, November 19th, penetrating Napoleon's design. I do not think they will succeed with an army of seventy or even eighty thousand men if they do not make their attack for two or three months, which I believe is now impossible. I conceive not only that they may, but that they will make the attack before they will subdue the north of Spain. It was to parry this foreseen onset that he created the lines of Torres Vedras, and managed to keep his great project secret not only from the enemy, but from his own army. It was toward the end of his long sojourn on the Guadiana that the Spanish junta, against his advice, once more sent forward their soldiers to defeat. Areizaga's army was routed at Ocaña, and Del Parque was worsted at Alba de Tormes, and thus Andalusia was laid open to the French. Wellington held his ground as long as he deemed it prudent but toward the end of November, when the Spanish authorities were bent on following their own course, and even trying to force him into a dependent position, he transferred his main body from the Guadiana to the Mondego, and left the trusty hill at Abrantes to watch the Tagus Valley. Then followed the invasion of Andalusia by Joseph and Soult, and the speedy capture of everything up to the walls of Cadiz, which saved by Albuquerque's rapid march, was now reinforced by British troops drawn from Wellington's army. Troops he could ill spare, yet did spare, 
so ready was he to subordinate his own interest to the common cause during the spring and summer of eighteen ten even his steadfast mind was most severely tried napoleon bent on divorcing the faithful josephine and obtaining a new wife from a royal house he first asked for a russian and next secured an austrian archduchess engrossed by the affairs of a stupendous empire which he was enlarging year by year and involved already in an incipient quarrel with russia was unable to keep his word and conduct a second campaign in the peninsula but he poured tens of thousands of troops over the pyrenees urged on and lashed his marshals and generals gave them almost absolute power within the limits of their commands and not only made soult military dictator in joseph's realm but appointed massena prince of essling to command the army which was to conquer portugal under napoleon's vigorous stimulus fortress after fortress fell in fighting catalonia and throughout spain the french appeared to stride from victory to victory one force flowing from the heart of the nation could not be repressed the partidas and guerillas irregular warriors under irregular chiefs were everywhere beaten and everywhere present hardly one single line of communication though strongly guarded was safe from incursions letters were intercepted convoys captured weak detachments beaten and stragglers murdered nevertheless the french in masses were always and easily victorious in the field and as the strong places yielded sometimes after a stout and sometimes after a feeble resistance the emperor's lieutenants appeared to have a grip of the country in the midst of this tempest wellington and the armies he commanded were the only solid forces erect compact and undaunted the commander had not only to contend with an enemy led by redoubtable captains he had to combat and control foes in the portuguese regency and sustain his own government he had to withstand even the officers of his army some highly placed who helped the opposition bombarded their friends at home with shrieks of despair and rendered the house of commons reluctant to vote supplies the truth is wrote lord liverpool in september eighteen ten the contest could never have been maintained in portugal through the winter and spring if it had not been for the determination of the government to persevere in it at all risks to themselves against not only the declared opinions of their opponents but the private remonstrances of many of their friends nevertheless the credit of tenacity is wellington's due for had he flinched nothing could have averted a retreat from portugal perhaps from the peninsula nor was it a blind tenacity but one based on a sober and correct estimate of the facts the superb qualities of his british troops the weakness as well as the mighty strength of the french spanish folly and spanish obstinacy the steadfast and docile spirit of the portuguese people the disturbed condition of home politics which helped to enfeeble the government not less than the natural defect which made the statesmen of all parties and still more the parties themselves incapable of taking profound and far-reaching views of any great military plans he surveyed the whole field so vast and so complex formed just conclusions and stood firmly by his judgment 
but it was only after he had achieved splendid but still qualified successes that the greatness of his character was recognized and the confidence of the British people won. In the spring of 1810 the common cause seemed to be falling into ruin. No power in Europe except England was on foot against Napoleon, who was striving with all his might to exclude her from the continent and destroy her commerce. Wellington and his little army were in the north of Portugal watching the storm gathering over the frontier. For Massena, having a wide command, had come to the front in May, intent on wrestling Suidad Rodrigo from the Spaniards in order to secure a solid base for the invasion of Portugal. He assembled more than 80,000 men and had under his command nearly 40,000 more, for Renier on the Tagus and Bonnet on the Asturias were within his jurisdiction. When Suidad was invested by Ney in June, the Spaniards and Portuguese eagerly besought Wellington to march to its relief. But an essential quality of a great commander is strength to resist temptation. He had that quality, and although it was hard to resist, it would have been weak to yield, since even success, always doubtful against superior numbers of good troops, would not have improved his position. He was threatened from the side of Estremadura as well as Castile, had to watch narrowly the movements on all sides, maintain a sharp contest with the obstructives in the Portuguese regency, and make up for the shortcomings of his government as well as he could. Nothing shook his constancy of mind. Suidad Rodrigo surrendered early in July, yet he still held his ground. Before and during the siege, the famous light division, commanded by Robert Crawford, faced the French on the Agueda, and performed many actions which showed how perfect it was and how dangerous to assail. Wellington had expressly ordered Crawford not to fight beyond the Coa, the next deep affluent of the Duru on the plain. But Crawford did not obey. The fall of Suidad still found him in front of the river, and when on July 24th Ney bounded forward at the head of 29,000 men, including a host of cavalry, the light division leader, carried away by his pugnacity, lingered to fight him, and it was a marvel that his hardy men escaped. But they did, thanks to their own great qualities, although the sole line of retreat was over a bridge at the bottom of a deep ravine, and when by luck and judgment they had crossed, no Frenchman or few followed, for the deadly musketry drew a line on the bridge which none could pass. I am glad to see you safe, Crawford, said the general when he met him. Oh, I was in no danger, I assure you, replied the fighting Scot. But I was, from your conduct, said Wellington. Crawford's sole private comment was, He is damned crusty today, and he had reason to be. The British lost 342 killed, wounded, and prisoners, but the French were fewer by a thousand men. Then Almeida, which stands beyond the Coa was invested, a lucky shell falling in the magazine paralyzed the defense, and the strong little fortress, which should have resisted for some weeks, surrendered. The two places which Massena needed for the security of his advance were thus in his power, and the long-deferred wrestle with the mighty French army was now to begin. Wellington still held his positions, 
and kept them until the arrival of Renier at Guarda, the gate into the line on the right, made it clear that Massena was coming on. Then he began to retreat in accordance with his carefully prepared plan, and directed Hill and Leith, who were near Abrantes and Tomar, to join him in front of Coimbre, for he never intended to risk a battle so far from Lisbon, or fight at all, unless on formidable ground. The disposition he had made of his divisions was framed for the purpose of guarding all the practicable lines of invasion, and concentrating upon that which the adversary might select, so that when in the middle of September the French marshal started forward, Wellington yielded the ground he occupied in order to secure his retreat upon the lines. He watched his opponent closely, and was so quick that his troops were united on the Alva when the French were at Viziu, for Hill had detected the movement of Renier, and anticipating orders had marched at once toward his chief. Massena selected for his line of advance the right bank of the Mondego, said to be the worst road in Portugal, and when his masses of troops and baggage emerged from the defiles, he found himself between the river and a curving range of mountains, and on the mountains the allied army barring his way to Coimbra. The two armies had moved on each bank of the river, but the allies crossed to the right, where the stream breaks through the lofty heights, and occupied the position of Busaco on the ridge which closes the deep and wooded vales. Reduced since May by disease and combat to 56,000 men, the French were wedged in between the Mondego and the Caramula Sierra, with no outlet known to them except over the crest of the ridge where Wellington halted to fight a battle. That serious risk did not form part of his original design. He had induced the Regency to enforce the old laws exacting service from all able-bodied Portuguese, and besides the 30,000 regulars trained by Beresford, there were under arms in the hills from the Minho to the Capes of Algarve, from the sea to the rugged frontier, many score thousands of men willing and eager but badly armed and ill-fed, commanded by local leaders or partisan chiefs like Trant and John Wilson and Silviera. When the French moved southward, these swarmed on their flanks and rear, easily brushed away yet ever returning. Wellington proposed, and the Regency agreed to act, on the stern, harsh, yet effective plan of wasting the whole country between the Estrella and the sea, and transporting the people who could not hide in the mountains into the lines, so that Massena, deprived of all sources of supply and having no magazines, because he acted on Napoleon's maxim that war should support war, would be forced to retreat when he was stopped before the fortified positions covering Lisbon. It was therefore not necessary to fight, and if the British general chose to do so, though he afterwards thought it a mistake, he did so deliberately, and because at the time he thought a battle would raise the confidence and gratify the yearnings of his troops, and give a certain splendor to his retreat. He could trust his greatly outnumbered British troops in a strong defensive position, and not doubting their good will, he could test the worth of Beresford's Portuguese in actual combat. It was a risk, because Leith and Hill were near, but not on the field, 
when the leading columns of the french appeared but when he thought it right to run a risk he was never the man to shirk the responsibility and considering that the french armies had been so triumphant in spain it was just as well to remind them again before getting beyond their reach behind works that they were not invincible perhaps the risk was greater than he judged it to be for when ney and Renier came in sight of the position the allies were not in array and ney desired to begin a battle at once but messina was some miles distant ney dared not fight without leave and before the french commander joined the marshal the opportunity if any such really existed had passed away as they were closing on the sierra wellington was obliged to take command of the light division in order to prevent crawford from plunging into action always burning to fight he had waited so long that all the skill of the general says napier and the readiness of the troops could scarcely evade a disaster luckily the general was ubiquitous which means that he saw where the pinch was likely to be he was usually foremost in an advance and with the hindmost in a retreat when Messena, on the afternoon of the twenty sixth reconnoitred the position he found it well occupied yet he resolved to fight on the following day the position of busaco was a mountain crest eight miles long extending from the mondego on the right to the impassable ridges of the caramula sierra on the left the highest ground was in the centre and there stood spencer with the first division on his right were picton leith and hill forward yet below him was pack and on his left front upon a lower bastion like rocky spur was the light division and a german brigade while cole held the extreme left abutting on the pathless caramula three roads coming from martagoa cut through the position each running on to coimbra one passing a large convent in rear of the left centre and a road also ran along the crest behind the front of battle the french troops were on the opposing ridges separated from busaco by a chasm so profound that the naked eye could hardly distinguish the movement of troops in the bottom yet in parts so narrow that twelve pounders could range across massena feared lest the british general should not wait the shock the british general was confident of success if he were assailed for massena need not have fought he might have turned the line before him but while wellington knew of the rough narrow track from martagoa through the caramula to boyalva and hoped that it was guarded by trent who could not have resisted but only delayed an army the french marshal was ignorant of the road and even had its existence been reported to him he would probably still have preferred a battle to a manoeuvre thus at dawn on september twenty seventh renier and ney sent forward columns of attack junot the marshal held in reserve and the battle of busaco began the french made two determined onsets widely separated and not simultaneous renier's brigades directed against the right climbed the slopes with unflagging strides and were first in action driving in picton's skirmishers and their supports they won the crest and while one portion turned to the right the other formed across the ridge facing the mondego wellington himself brought up two guns which opened on the flank of the former intruders with grape 
while musketry struck their front finally a resolute charge by the eighty eighth and half the forty fifth swept them from the height and down the steep up which they had valiantly ascended the other part of the column did not long retain its vantage ground general leith who saw their progress up the hill hastened forward with one brigade and the ninth under colonel cameron running in without firing a shot turned them out of the position but did not pursue except with musketry and hill coming up as well as leith's second brigade the struggle was over for Renier was unable to resume the battle. On the other flank, Ney fared no better. His hardy soldiers also overcame the obstacles in their path until they had nearly gained the summit, but then the line once more mastered the column. Crawford, alone on a rock, waited until the French were close below the crest, following the retiring riflemen, and at the right moment he sent the 43rd and 42nd into the fray. Their fury could not be resisted, for their charge broke the head of the column, their fire struck both front and flanks, and three terrible discharges at five yards' distance shattered the wavering mass. Here again discipline prevailed, and the pursuit was stayed. These two severe combats virtually ended the battle, for afterwards no serious attack was made. The position had been assailed and found impregnable. The killed and wounded on the side of the Allies is put down at 1,300 men, while the French lost one general and 800 men killed and three generals wounded, their total loss being estimated at 4,500. It was a rude lesson. During the afternoon, for the battle ceased soon after midday, Messina took counsel and learned accidentally that a rough road over the Caramula would enable him to turn the position he resolved to take it at once. The next day, covered by skirmishing in the ravines, the French army disappeared from the right and were seen traversing the mountains on the left. Napier gives us a glimpse of his commander on the evening of the 28th. From the ground occupied by the light division, he looked at the distant columns with great earnestness. He seemed uneasy. His countenance bore a fierce, angry expression, and suddenly mounting his horse he rode away without speaking one hour afterwards the whole army was in movement heading by different routes for the lines the fierce angry expression may be referred to the failure of trant for which he was not to blame to obstruct the narrow path to boyalba the army retired by easy marches toward lisbon and as Messina fondly hoped to embark in their ships and leave him master, but when he approached the mountains, the British army had vanished through the passes, and the French marshal stood baffled and astonished before the formidable works of an entrenched camp, which snatched from his grasp the fruits of the campaign. It was a surprise not only to the Prince of Essling, but to the Portuguese and the British army, and it may be said that the stupendous design realized in the secret and assiduous construction of the lines of Torres Vedras revealed for the first time to his countrymen, as well as to Europe, the military genius of England's great captain. Messina marched his troops boldly up to the verge of the fortified hills. He had declared that the position of Busaco was the strongest in Portugal. Here he found a stronger, 
and after a close examination of all he could see, he refrained from attack. But the line visible to him was only one of a series. Wellington and the engineer, Colonel Fletcher, had converted the heights flanked by the Tagus and the Atlantic into a fortress, and the general had formed his design, and the colonel had begun the work in October 1809 to meet the exigency which arose in October 1810. It was the cornerstone of the system whereby he undertook to defend Portugal, when he asked first for thirty and then for thirty-five thousand British troops, the greatest number he could feed. There were three lines, the foremost extended from Alandra on the Tagus to the mouth of the Zizandre on the sea. That, though powerful, was not absolutely impervious to attack at the outset, but became so when the rains filled the streams and flooded the banks of the Zizandre. The second, which touched the meadows of the Tagus south of the Calandris and the ocean at the mouth of the San Lorenzo, was the real defense, and behind these two was the third on the estuary below Lisbon, drawn around the castle of San Julian, garrisoned by marines and thrown up as cover for an embarkation, so that all emergencies, even the worst, were provided for. But Wellington never believed that the French would be able to drive him to his ships, and only feared lest the British government should recall his army. The whole stupendous array which barred all the roads through the mountains was well armed and amply manned by a victorious army, while every day the mighty strength of the original works was increased by the energy and invention of the defenders. Massena judged rightly when he stood aloof and took post between Villafranca and Sobral, until dire necessity obliged him to retire upon Santeraim, and also to permit his veterans to spread themselves abroad in search of food, and thus ruin their fine discipline. The marshal held on to the Tagus and the Zezeri, partly because he got some provand from that unwasted country, and also because he still hoped that Soult or Mortier from the south would join him. Wellington had called Romana and six thousand Spaniards into the lines. They crossed the Tagus at Aldea Gallega, opposite Lisbon, and Napoleon declared that Soult ought to have followed them, as if that would have been practicable in itself, or in the conditions governing the proceedings of Soult. But Napoleon was not well informed, and he had got into the habit of demanding too much from his generals. The truth is that in the winter of 1810 and 11, while Massena was cut off from communication even with his magazines, Soult could neither take Cadiz nor detach sufficient troops from Andalusia to relieve the army of Portugal. Coimbra, with a host of wounded, had been captured by Trant almost before the French were on the Tagus, and Silviera, taking post in the mountains, had turned back Gardan with supplies from Suidad Rodrigo. Wellington, secure behind his rocks and redoubts, ready to spring forward so soon as his foe retreated, was still in danger from his friends and allies. Certain members of the Regency opposed and harassed him until he could only free himself by threatening to withdraw, and when that did not avail, changing the governing body in self-defense. It was the arrogant faction which had failed to devastate the country, thus leaving resources within reach of the French, and it was the same men who starved their own people and soldiers 
and strove to inflame the populace of Lisbon against their defenders. In addition to the folly of the Portuguese, he had to wrestle with the political weakness of his own government, growing out of causes which seemed inherent in the British system. Even in January 1811 he wrote to Mr. William Pole that the only instructions he had were to save the British army, and that is the only object, he said, officially stated to me for keeping an army in the peninsula. But privately the object was plainly declared. He had, he said, scarcely the force, 35,000 infantry originally promised. He wanted more troops and more money, and his remarks that if we cannot persevere in carrying it, the contest, on in the peninsula or elsewhere on the continent, we must prepare to make one of our own islands the seat of war. If he were largely reinforced, he was tolerably certain of the result, and he added, I am equally certain that if Bonaparte cannot root us out of this country, he must alter his system in Europe and give us such a peace as we ought to accept. At the same time, he doubted whether the administration had the power, inclination, or nerve to do what should be done. They allowed him no patronage or power, such as a commander always had, and though he was the mainspring of all other operations, yet they gave him neither influence nor support nor means of acquiring influence. I have not authority to give a shilling or a stand of arms or a round of ammunition to anybody. I do give all, it is true, but it is contrary to my instructions and at my own peril. Not another officer in the army would even look at the risks he incurred every day, but if he did not incur them, the contest would not go on for a moment. These warm words paint the situation in strong colors, and they show that Wellington was the soul of the war in the peninsula. Reinforcements were on the way, and also notes of discouragement, still went out from his officers and came from London. Yet he remained firm and constant, and literally saved the government and the country he served by his strength of mind and unswerving fidelity. Such was his duty as a servant of the state, and his duty he always performed. At that very moment the Spaniards on the Guadiana, neglecting to destroy or defend the bridge at Merida, had allowed the French to threaten the Alentejo, that is, the approach to the left bank of the Tagus opposite Lisbon, and had thus increased the necessity of guarding the headlands on the harbour. Sult, indeed, was now seriously bent on capturing Olivenza, Batajos, and Elvas, before cooperating with Messena. He took the first, but ere Batajos surrendered on March 11th, Messena had been four days on the road to northern Spain, and as Graham defeated Victor at Barossa on the 5th, Sult gained nothing except Badajoz, which was much, for he was obliged to hurry back to guard Andalusia. The enemy had lingered long in the valley of the Tagus, and had offered no opening for attack. Messina is an old fox, Wellington writes from Cartagio. After the retreat of the French to Santarain, he risks nothing. So it was, but at length, when no news came from Sult, and no reinforcements except a few thousands under Drouet, who did not pass Leria, and failed to open the line of communication, when disease and want had reduced his army to some fifty thousand men, the old marshal resolved to retreat. 
he began his stealthy movement on the second day of March with the baggage and Ney's corps, but Junot and Renier did not slip away until the evening of the 5th, and the whole movement was so cleverly managed that Wellington was not able to follow in force until the 7th. But the light division was off in pursuit early on the 6th, and soon the whole army was on the track of the French. From that time it was a race for positions and lines of retreat, but although Messina desired to seize Coimbra and secure the high road to Oporto and the line of the Duru, his object was frustrated partly by the failures of his subordinates and greatly by the vigor of the pursuit. Renier had retreated from the road from Tomar to Espinal, while Ney and Junot took the mountain paths toward Pombal. The former was followed by one brigade and some horse, the latter by the main army. Leith and Picton advancing from the lines of Leiria, along the road to Coimbre, the others over the hills from Santerain and Tomar. Messena halted his two corps at Pombal, still uncertain whether Trant could be frightened out of Coimbre, and on the tenth the Allies were up in his front. An attempt at resistance was speedily overcome, and the French fell back toward Condiacia. Ney, however, hard-pressed, stopped to fight or gain time at Radinia, on a plain commanding the hollow through which ran the high road, flanked by a pine wood and the sierra. Wellington, who was early on the ground, reconnoitred the position, but Ney had made so fine a display that his force seemed larger than it was. Therefore Wellington sent the light division on one flank and Picton on the other, and drew up his main body against the center. A contemporary letter from a gallant gunner engaged in the fight says, Figure to yourself fourteen thousand men with their colors unfurled, advancing in line, and supported by solid columns of infantry and cavalry on their flanks, and a second line in rear of the center. Indeed, it was such a sight that all former military spectacles must give way to. Still, for once, Wellington had been imposed on, for, according to Napier, there were already on the ground enough troops to overwhelm Ney, and when the gorgeous lines started forward, the enemy had vanished over the river Sur and could only be struck by the artillery. That was to the credit of Ney as a master of tactics, but he ran a great risk and was taught a useful lesson. From Redinia, the pursuit followed fast through Condesia. Messena, it is true, halted again behind that town, yet only to cover his line of retreat and outface his adversary. Wellington then assumed a masterful initiative and turned the French left with the third division, whereupon Ney burned Condesia, and the enemy retreated in some confusion toward Marseille, where a bridge spanned the Alva just above its confluence with the Mondego, the sole road open. Ney, who had all the fighting, stood fast at Casal Navel, until being assailed in front and turned on his left, he was forced to give ground, and the left bank of the Sierra being the higher, he thought it desirable to hold it, and with some six thousand men faced his pursuers at Fonche d'Arose, with a river in his rear. There he waited too long, for Wellington, knowing his audacious temper, closed with him at once, inflicted great losses on one wing of his gallant troops, and obliged him to cross the Seria in the night. This was on the 15th, a week since the pursuit began, 
during which time Messena allowed no rest, had been driven from every position, thrust aside from Coimbre, and compelled to take the road to Ciudad Rodrigo, and he would have suffered still more severely had not Wellington's plans been frustrated by the heedlessness of some of his subordinates. The French corps were now again united, for Renier had come up, and the British brigade which had followed him also joined the main body. Messena, having broken the bridges, made one more attempt to stand behind the Alva, and seemed confident in his position. Yet he was speedily shaken and again in retreat, when he saw the British soldiers traversing the rugged heights on his left, in less than three weeks after he began his clever movements from Santarain, he was in Celorico, the point from which he launched his invading columns down the Mondego in September 1810. He now wished to transfer his army through Guarda to Coria on the Alagon, and threaten Lisbon from the side of the Tagus. Ney openly disobeyed his orders, the marshal thereupon sent him back to France, gave the Sixth Corps to Loison, and moved to Guarda, where he joined Ranier. He hoped to remain there, but Wellington, whose reinforcements had arrived at the front and filled up the gap made by the march of Cole's division to join Beresford on the left bank of the Tagus, closed upon Guarda, and on the 29th tumbled the French out of that strong position, compelling them to retreat beyond the Coa and occupy San Bugal. Messina still clung to the idea of conquering Portugal, and continued his duel with Wellington to the last. End of section 9